0: Don't say that I will depart manana, even today I am still arriving, look deeply, every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosizing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. Big up, Thai! Venerable Titnat Han. This poem is, Please Call Me By My True Names. Yes, sir. So we at this again. This week is another portion from the archives. This is a a convo uh, convened actually a couple months ago during the occasion of the World Interfaith Harmony Week that is convened each year by the United Nations. A week of um, mindfulness, of programs, of solicitation of reconciliation between communities, and so on this occasion, um, there is a a conversation that is convened between myself and Bud Heckman, who is um, from the Re- Religions for Peace, one of the largest interfaith organizations on earth, um, and um, David Gallup, who is the executive director of World Citizenship. Excuse me, World Service Authority that that promotes uh, world citizenship. So uh, we talk about world citizenship, we talk about world social service, and we talk about world interfaith harmony week. Um, and um, the, the con was about an hour long. Uh, I, I listened to a portion of it as I prepare to uh, um, prepare for this uh, podcast session. Um, and yo, for one, yo, I talk fast. Um, part of it is because it was on Zoom and there was a time limit, so I was trying to get that done. And also, you know, I got a lot to say. Uh, and uh, and um, when in certain forum or fora, I try to say it as much as I can. Sometimes there's that wisdom of just uh, less is further. Uh, yet, uh, I still get called upon to, like, say it when I got it. So anyways, I, either I say, I talk fast or I talk long and long and long. Um, and right now, it might, might be a wee bit of the latter. So, um there's that. Oh yo, I do remember I sing in this joint, <laughs> so I'm uncertain what the cringe level is on that. But it's it's early on, so you can get that over with if you're uh, listening to this. And then, uh, da, 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 da. like I said, we talk about that topic: uh, world service, world citizenship, world social service, and world interfaith harmony. Um, how that all that is is intertwined. One of the interesting things is how each of these notions: world world citizenship. Um, has a certain constituency. World interfaith has a certain constituency. And then, uh, the notion of world service, or excuse me, the world, world, uh, social service, if we can look at act- activism additionally, it has its own constituency. And even though much of these, uh, constituencies have a very similar premise, there's actually a, a significant amount of, um, avoidance or have have yet to uh kind of coalesce amongst these respective global uh or world constituencies so that's part of the purpose of this combo is like bring bridging these these uh um, these combos together bring bring bridging these uh, constituencies together bringing Bridging these ideologies uh, and intentionalities and, and systems and institutions together to be increasingly cooperative, effective, and uh, evolved systems and institutions. Uh, so that's much of it. Um, uh, that's going to be the intro. I'm going to see how it goes after the uh, the combo. So it's about an hour. Uh, one love and peace. Oh, yeah. Wait, what am I doing? Namaste. Assalamualaikum. Shalom. Mir, niha, Buenos Dias, Buenos Tardes, Hesice, Aquaba, in. What up, though? True indeed. And for those who don't know, I am. Peter Johansson OCC, a.k.a. Zuri G. And this is the combo. Um, So, ah, cheers. Uh, Fantastic. Um, So, we're we're rolling. And um, I'm mindful of the time because of of, of what I shared before. So, I'm just going to get into it. Um, And I'm going to begin with like a, a, a welcoming, so I, I share greetings and I do a namaste and assalamu and shalom and buenos dias. One love and peace to each of you, Bud and David and everyone who is watching at this moment. Um, and we are we are here to talk about the experience and the walk of um, world social work and world citizenship and world interfaith harmony. Um, and I am Peter Johansson Ossisi. I work with uh, the Melange Ethos Institute as well as uh, Sona Ashram. Uh, I'm joined with by uh, with, I'm joined here with uh, Bud Heckman, uh, who uh, we've arrived at a compromise. I can refer to him as one of the most interesting men of the interfaith movement. Uh, he is a, a philanthropic consultant with uh, many affiliations on, and uh, a, a, a very uh, strong CV uh, of working with organizations like the United United Religions. Excuse me. Religions for Peace um, and uh, El- Oh, I'm getting some feedback. El, El- Hebrew Foundation um, and and consulting with additional organizations like Un- United Re- United Religions Initiative, Parliament of the World's Religions, um, uh, Tri Faith Initiative, uh, and and the list goes on. Um, and so I know, uh, but for over a decade at this point, uh, at, at our affiliation with the North American Interfaith Network, I think we most recently uh, see each other in person at part of the world's religions a few years ago um, and so a dear brother uh, Bud Heckman thank you for joining us today uh, and also we have David Gallup who is another dear brother who I know for a number of years at this point uh, who is the executive director of the World Service Authority uh, that haha, I have something that resembles that background um, behind you this right here uh, so um, uh, like I said I know David for a number of years and uh, I've actually been involved with the World Service Authority for over a decade at this point um, And he does some tremendous work in terms of building people's consciousness and, and pragmatism towards the the, the the experience and the actuality of of world citizenship and and cooperation amongst the many peoples of, of the earth uh, and so we're here on this stage to talk about uh, this, this experience um, and in doing that uh, I have Two stories and a song to share. Uh, to be brief, um, so yesterday I'm here at Case Western Reserve University, uh, and I and I visit here on on, on a regular basis. And yesterday I was here, uh, and I go I approached the Interfaith uh, Center to do uh, to offer uh, uh, duhar, salat, and and perform some samadhi with my Talit and tow. Uh, and on my way there, I, I come across another dear brother, Ramez Islambouy, who is a professor. Uh, he's the the faculty advisor of the Muslim Student the Muslim Student Association, uh, and he opens the door for me to get into the interface center. And so he's on his way to class. He says, "I'm on my way to class." I'm like, "Okay, what's the topic?" He says, "Ah, oh, I'm, I'm teaching class on ritual." I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting. Ritual, okay." Uh, and so he he describes a little bit about that, and then so. Uh, I said, you know what, I I paused for a minute because I was uncertain whether to share this because sometimes when when we're pluralistic, we we have to be careful about how much we share about other traditions. But I I took the liberty because I know him for over a decade doing work on this campus. So I said, you know what, Confucius talks a lot about uh, rituals Uh, and and, and I'm studying Confucius at this moment. He says, oh, is that so? He shows me his paper and on the top of the the topic heading, it says Confucius and it starts talking about what Confucius says about uh, ritual. So I'm like, aha. Uh, and that's one of those awesome moments when we, when we, when we come from our different backgrounds and we see that there's that connectivity of significance. And I find that particularly important because we're in the midst of a ritual at this moment, uh, this World Interfaith Harmony Week that the United Nations convenes uh, each year. Um, and the United Nations uh, draws from the, this legacy of rituals that Confucius and so many of our teachers provide. Um, in these these uh, yearly uh, commemorations and and, and and observances, to to heighten our mindfulness, our intentionality, our education, and our activism uh, along the different themes that, that are that are uh, being emphasized. And so this week is World Interfaith Harmony Week, uh, and so I thought that was a very appropriate uh, uh, anecdote to consider as we as we get into this. Um, the other the other. Uh, Uh, story that i have is also from yesterday i visit another brother david who's a medical anthropologist here at case uh and i I have a meeting with him and uh, i'm a little bit late about 10 minutes late trouble finding the building getting access to it and additionally i'm about 10 minutes late and i arrive at the door thinking well he's from uganda he's cpt he's he'll, he'll be fine cool cool so as he's opening the door he's already on the phone talking to somebody else and he raises his eyebrow and he goes I say, aha, a little bit presumptuous, so I was. Uh, but it was all cool, we hug and then we have a fantastic meeting. So um, that was another anecdote from yesterday as we talk about the timeliness of ritual. And I keep that in mind as, as we continue on for this for this afternoon. Um, now, the one the one other thing I have to say before uh, we get into this, we, we actually had another participant planned today. Uh, but she's unable to attend. She's actually a student here at Case and at the Mandel School for Social Work. Um, and so um, she initially was was intended to speak on the experience of or the, the, uh, the interest of social work and the notion of world social work. Uh, and so I'm, st- I'm standing in on that behalf uh, today. Um, so before I, before I do that, though, I'll, I'll share this song. Um, this week is also uh, the birthday of one Bob Marley. Uh, who is who is one who, who is, uh, shares? I, I, I see smiles on, on the faces, so that registers a little bit, and it, and I see that around the earth. So uh, that's very duly appropriate. His birthday is mañana tomorrow, uh, and so I have a wee bit of a song, an excerpt that I just hear. I, I've heard it a long time before, but it just recently becomes my new favorite Bob Marley song. Um, and so, I've, and this is after listening to Bob Marley music for a decade. So I just share a little bit of that as we as we get into this combo. And I, I appreciate your
1: your, your patience in my soliloquy. Here's the song. In this life, in this life, in this all-sweet oh, life, we're coming in from the do, Coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in from the cold. It's you, it's you, it's you I'm talking to, yeah, now you 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 i'm talking to now why do you look so sad and forsaken don't you know when one door is closed many doors are open would you let the system get on top your head again no dread no would you let the system make you kill your brother man no dread no Would you let the system get on top of your head again? No dread, no. The biggest man you ever see was once a baby in this life, in this life, in this all sweet life we're coming in from the cold.
0: So, that's my two songs in the story, or two stories in the song, which Confucius also emphasizes: the songs and our stories. So, um, with that in mind, I invite us to continue into the conversation. And this is the segue where Natalie's supposed to come in and say, "Oh, now world service, our world, world, world social work," and I'm supposed to stop talking, uh, and let it go. But I have to keep on talking a little bit because I'm stepping in. So, um, I'll give a little bit of a spiel about on the topic of um, world social work uh, as we're coming in from the cold in this winter day. It's kind of warm for today, but. World Social Work. Um, This past year, I see a a video on YouTube on the experience of um, at Hopi, at the Hopi Nation and and the Hopi Reservation uh, around uh, the the vicinity of Nevada uh, and New Mexico. Um, And a lot of the the problems that are experienced in terms of infrastructure, water, food, and additionally on the the reservation are shared in in many urban areas and additionally and this is something that typically a, a community development corporation addresses um, we, community corporation community development corporations being effectively grassroots type government service providers uh, doing um housing doing community service education job training job placement and additionally but Basically stepping in where, where there are there are absences of, of, of what the government is providing at the moment at the local level the geographic uh, local community neighborhood based um, and so when I'm listen, when I'm watching this video on the on Hopi Nation uh, and seeing like some severe devastation I mean people talk about the the um, uh, the conditions on Native reservations being the most abject in the Western Hemisphere um, it, it, exactly in the midst of the most uh, the most affluent experiences so. Um, it's there are severe severe challenges, and so um, uh, job placement, uh, employment is a severe uh, problem. Health, um, and additionally, typical typical problems. Um, and one particular problem that was emphasized was uh, fresh water, uh, and, and and building infrastructure, uh, plumbing, uh, uh, cultivating a well to bring uh, provide fresh water for uh, the reservation, the population on the reservation, and. Uh, I'm thinking to myself whilst I'm listening to this that this is the exact type of project that uh, an Inter-American Development Bank uh, uh, supports or the United Nations Development Program and additionally, um, because that's exactly what these these agencies do in terms of identifying uh, problems that are experienced by an entire collective, an entire community, uh, and and working with the elected or the established um, 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 community leadership governors, uh, mayors, or what have you, uh, to, to establish programs that help the community. Uh, but I think to myself, you know what, the Hopi Nation is probably completely oblivious to the whole, probably the whole UN system, uh, let alone all the, 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 the local or the regional development banks and, and, and NGOs and IGOs that are doing these types of initiatives. So I call them up and I say, hey, do you at least even know about this? And they're like, what is that? I'm like, well, I can give you some information if you want. I'm like, yeah, okay. So I gave them a, a, like a little bit of actually a considerable like um, description of like all the different services and, and, and programs and initiatives. And they're like, we'd like some additional information about this. So that, that's, that's that's a conversation that's continuing. Uh, and, I, and I say that particularly because I'm involved with, with the, the, the Cleveland American Indian Movement here in the Cuyahoga area, uh, and that's actually how I, uh, got in contact with uh, Natalie. She reached out to, the, to Cleveland AIM and, and her, her communication got forwarded to me. And that's what she and I are in the conversation of, of addressing na- uh, needs for Native brethren here in the Cuyahoga area. Um, and so that's the that's the consideration is that uh, we, we know that there are a lot of needs in, in, in local urban areas and rural areas um, and, and on the res and additionally uh, that are being unmet for whatever reason. Um, and that Many of these situations, many of these challenges, are exactly within the mandate of many international NGOs and IGOs and, and initiatives. Uh, but there's a challenge in, in, in facilitating that direct connection, uh, or even just the knowledge um, for for people to 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 to, um, to connect with with, with uh, funds and services and, and additional support. Uh, and so that's the idea of world so, uh, social work um, is. Facilitating that connection uh, and, and providing those channels of, of support and cooperation accordingly, uh, and so that's basically the idea of, of uh, world social work. Um, and um, I, I share that with the consideration of these additional elements that we that we talk about in terms of world citizenship and world interfaith harmony. Um, and but at this point, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that, and I'm gonna invite you, David, to to uh, talk about. Um, your work with World Service Authority um, and what, what, what your what you I mean share your spiel on, on world citizenship with the individual um, um, and what that what that translates into in terms of um, collective uh, cooperation and then how that collective cooperation addresses the pragmatic needs that we're experiencing uh, as world citizens and world society and I'm gonna I'm gonna mute my thing because I know that I have some uh, background music here so I'm gonna mute myself and, and, and I welcome you um, uh, David to 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 share your experience
2: sure thank you peter i really appreciate this opportunity to speak with everyone about the concept of world citizenship i'm a human rights lawyer so i come from it uh, from a legal perspective more so than a conceptual or philosophical perspective although i i also have the philosophical perspective on it too um so let me just start by saying that uh well citizenship is our rights and duties within a particular communal framework. So whatever that framework is or whatever that community is, uh, we as citizens have the the power or the right to uh, determine what our rights are, as well as determine how, on the duty side of it, how we'll help our fellow uh, humans, not just humans, but also our fellow beings on the planet and the Earth itself as its own uh, ecosystem, as its own, you might say, being. Uh, And I think humans have a lot of hubris to think that we're sort of separate or perhaps above Uh, or beyond nature, when we aren't, we're part of it, and uh, part of understanding what world citizenship is about is to know that we don't own anything, we don't own the world, in a sense the world owns us, or we should be good stewards of the planet, protecting the planet, because if the earth dies, we die, if humanity dies, we die with it. So it's a question of really uh, fundamental two questions uh, that are, in my mind, the most important questions of the 21st century, which are, who are you? And uh, how do we ensure the survival of humanity in the Earth? And I worked with a man named Gary Davis, who, whose uh, lifelong uh, uh, work was, you know, he, well, part of it's in his memoir, uh, "My Country is the World." There's a new film out, a documentary called "The World is My Country," and you can find out more about that at theworldismycountry.com, uh, and his story, uh, how he gave up uh, his national citizenship in favor of world citizenship to point out the fact. Uh, that these two important issues of who we are and we would and he would say well i'm a world citizen and we all are world citizens by birth and in fact and how do we ensure the survival of humanity in the earth and he came from it from the perspective of uh well he was a comedian an actor but an a, an individual who wanted to just make people laugh but who was put in a bomber plane and had to drop bombs on cities uh, in Belgium and in Germany during World War II. And he knew that those bombs weren't killing supposed military factories or targets, but were killing civilians, the the women, the children, the men who he wanted to make laugh. And he had a lot of remorse after World War II. And he said, I I need to get out of this war system. And he said, well, what can I do to do that? So he read a book called, uh, Anatomy of Peace, by Emery Reeves, a really wonderful book that talks, that sort of debunks all the isms, capitalism, communism, socialism, internationalism, religionism, all in favor of this idea that we can, as human beings, uh, create the void that exists beyond the, the nation right now and see ourselves uh, as the biggest tribe, as as world citizens. So uh, that was part of the uh, reason uh, why he gave up his citizenship was what he read in, uh, Anatomy of Peace partly was due to the killing that he did and his uh, remorse for that killing and the fact that his brother was killed uh, on his brother's battleship during World War II. So he gave all that up and he lived his whole adult life as a world citizen. I was honored to work with him for almost 25 years here Uh in our offices in Washington, D.C. at World Service Authority. So he was sort of my guru (laughs) in, in understanding this concept of of world citizenship and what that meant. So the, to the answer of who are you? Of course, uh, he Gary Davis would say, "Well, we are all world citizens by birth and in fact. And if we don't know that, then all we're going to do is continue the, the fighting, the anger, the, the destruction of our home, which is planet Earth. And uh, if we don't answer the question of how do we ensure the survival of humanity and the Earth, no other issues will matter." So for for him, putting wor- the word "world" in front of citizenship meant that all of our rights and duties that we might see within a local, uh, communal framework uh, here in our you know city or our our region, uh, have to be expanded to the highest level. And one of the one of the main documents which he actually helped, and this is a little known story, helped to get um, uh, uh, unanimously recognized was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, he held a big. Um, uh, event in Paris the night before the vote on the Declaration of Human Rights on December 9th, 1948, and there was almost 20,000 people at that, uh, at the Velodrome d'Hiver in Paris, and all, the, basically, the people spoke and said, we want our universal rights respected as human beings, and the next day, instead of, um, uh, vetoing it or rejecting it, there were certain, uh, groups of countries that, his, uh, over the last few years, had been rejecting it, uh, and I won't say say the names of the countries to, to not offend anybody, but those countries um, decided to abstain instead of rejecting it outright, and that meant that you know, it it passed unanimously. And this this really became, uh, well, initially you know a wish list. Then it became uh, more than that because, and I would say now it's customary international law, uh, because a lot of the principles have been uh, embedded in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, as well as, of course, uh, in the UN Charter, Articles 55 and 56. So um, Gary had a part in, in, in you know, demanding that our universal rights be respected uh, uh, and that our status as human beings, that we could claim a status beyond the nation state. And, um, even here in the United States, there are aspects to our national constitution like the ninth amendment, which says that the um, enumeration of certain rights in the constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Meaning we, the people can determine what our rights are. And one of those can be to choose an allegiance beyond uh, our, our family, our city, our state, our, our country, uh, our, our region, uh, and, and even the world. I mean, at some point, w- as soon as we meet those extraterrestrials who are bound to be out there, then we would have a universal citizenship. It wouldn't just be a world citizenship or earth citizenship. It would be a, a universal one. Or and if there's a multiverse, then a multiversal one. <laughs> so it's a question of knowing that our rights and duties are the same, whether we're here, you know, where I am in Washington, D.C. or wherever anyone is around the world. Uh, those same rights and duties, uh, exist at the highest level we don't we're not trained that way we're, we're unfortunately we're taught oftentimes by our national leaders or other leaders or even in schools that rights are grants by states and that the individual doesn't have much power in, the, in changing our world but actually rights are innate we're born with them and they are unalienable meaning we cannot sell them away we cannot give them up uh, so these um, rights and duties, uh, whether we're here locally or globally, should be respected. But to get them respected on a global level, we need to start seeing ourselves as human beings first and foremost, as as world citizens. So let me give you just a quick example, because I think it's helpful to elucidate this, uh, and especially because you you've uh, ho- asked that how how does what are the rights and responsibilities of the individual, and how do we help others sort of in our collective. Uh, community. So a quick example, and once again, I'll leave out, you know, place names just to not offend anybody, but uh, there was a a case um, not long ago where there was a child born in a certain place of the world. His parents were of different ethnicities than uh, the country where the child was born. And because of this, you might say, ethnic or xenophobic sort of uh, feeling, uh, the, the government, even the local government of that one place, would not give the child a birth certificate simply because the child didn't have a birth certificate he could not go to the doctor and get the important you know inoculations or shots that he needed and could not go to school so the parents contacted our organization world service authority and said could you please issue a document for us so we issued him a world birth certificate and then that still wasn't was was part of it that helped um, him go to the doctor at least because then the doctor can say okay now you're real just because he was documented he had a piece of paper it's ridiculous how humans put more you know uh, more credence on on a piece of paper on a document that's also a human construct then on the actual live individual there before them. But so then what we did was we, we got an apostille or an authentication on top of that birth certificate by getting a authorization about the document and then get going to the office of authentication then putting a fancy uh, seal and a ribbon on it. So once again, people look at these fancy things, they go, oh, then it's legitimate, even though the person there in front of them is legitimate without that. But they took that and because this one country was a party to the Hague Convention on Apostilles, the government was then really basically required to respect the the the, able to go to school so it's amazing how i mean we live in a world according
0: excuse me david i'm uncertain if you're still talking i'm gone i've gotten a little bit of a technical difficulty there's been a freezing. This
2: really affects there's people. been a freezing
0: on my on my uh, on my feed. so i'm uncertain if, if if you're experiencing that as well or if that's ah
1: okay all right i so think it's your reception.
2: Okay. maybe it's on your side peter because yeah i can hear bud too so okay um anyway so uh, i'll speed this up because i know i don't, don't want to take up too much more time here but so just to say uh that e- even uh uh 50 of 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 the, uh, of the people who uh are women and girls who are 50 percent of the population who, who are undocumented uh are, i mean there's a major problem with documentation and once again you might not be able to vote you may not be able to uh, own property you might not be able to uh, even enter a, an office building if you don't have documentation and what we're saying here is really and gary davis would always say documentation isn't important i mean the world password is sort of an anti-password the point is to get rid of those requirements altogether so we can act with one another I- I share with one another uh, our beautiful planet Um, And know that, you know, when you you come across another fellow being that, that, that they have rights and duties and we should all see ourselves as as uh, world are, uh, are universal citizens. Um, and uh, I would say one of the things that w- we do is because we do deal with a lot of vulnerable populations, whether it's uh, indigenous populations or uh, like or the, the Rohingya refugees, as an example, you know, a million of them almost fled from Myanmar to uh, to Bangladesh uh, because they were not, they were stateless. The government there would not, I'm uh, I'm naming names, sorry, but the, the government would not give them Local citizenship, even though many of them have been living there for generations. So, what does that mean when a, a, gov- a government, a national government, can simply say, "Oh, well, you don't really exist," and then don't, won't provide them, like you were talking about, social services? They don't have access to those social services that are so important. One of our one of our uh, many projects is to establish world citizenship as a valid legal status for every human being so that you wouldn't just have a, a basis of, of human rights respected, but all your human rights. So no matter where you find yourself on planet Earth, you should be able to live, work, vote, uh, get, you know, health care benefits or whatever, just because you're uh, a being or a human being. And one of the things, because I know I want to end my comments here really shortly, is just to promote this thing. We're trying to, and I don't know how well you can see that, but we're trying to create um, a world citizen club, and it's kind of blurry, but we're trying to create a world Citizen Club. We've already launched a few, but we're trying to create them around the world and in particular starting in North America, I guess. Uh, High school and, and college students um, coming together and saying, I've got a passion, whether it's to deal with world poverty, to deal with the world refugee issue, to deal with the world climate issue, you know, some of these crucial issues that are impacting all of humanity as, as world citizens, and I want to work on that even here in my local community, because maybe they could do uh, you know, a beach cleanup or a, or a street you know, cleanup of their, of their local community, and that will you know, impact the world in, in the long run, or they can take up a poverty issue and, and highlight in their, in their backyard where people are suffering from economic discrimination or people who don't have access so we're hoping to build up the idea of, of, of students starting World Citizen Clubs on our campus. We have a website for that, which is WorldCitizenClub.org, so I encourage people to take a look at that. But and, I'm, and I, I don't, don't want to take any much more time because I know we only, time is short. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's so much. I
0: appreciate the energy, and the information, and I, I'm, I'm very hesitant. Like. Pausing, but we do we are, we are in a time crunch, so I want to make, be mindful of that and give give Bud an opportunity to talk. What I'll do is I, I'm thinking like I'll, I'll put links uh, to to your website and, and and websites that you reference there, so that people can re- uh, refer to that accordingly. Um, and I also ma- mentioned our friend uh, Nathaniel Mills. I was mentioning uh, who's involved who introduces me to World Service Authority dear friend from a brother from law school uh and involved in the olympic movement as well uh, and also just to give you this uh some additional tangibility um when you talk about transcending lines the, the fine line of transcending lines uh we lines are purposeful in this life but but oftentimes we evolve to a point where they become rigid uh, and so we have to kind of like be mindful of that and, and do it Um, and I'll say this recently, I saw a video of, um, a recording of, um, uh, of a hip hop radio station where they were interviewing most deaf, uh, Yassin Bey. He gives a shout out to you directly and gives a thanks to you, uh, for your helping him in in the situation in South Africa, when he was using the world service authority passport to go from South Africa to Ethiopia. And so I just going to put that out there. And when, when his message is getting to the hip hop community, that means there's some traction, uh, and, and like it's, it's getting there. So I appreciate that. And I meant to say that before. So, uh. Thank you very much, uh, and, and continue on to but, uh I know I, I gave you a whole li- a list of things like to cover, and it was like, "Yo, Peter, what do you expect? Seven minutes? What?" Um, but uh, <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I, I'm sure you have some thoughts already that you that that you have in mind. Yeah. Uh, but my, I think what, what might be helpful also is just like what motivates the religious community and the interfaith community to kind of bring this idea of world citizenship and, and the, the kumbaya that we experience and that we talk about in the faith movement into
3: the the needs uh, of the the communities. Thank you for inviting me to be on, Peter. I find you want to be one of the most interesting people in interfaith yourself. You're an autodidact and you're so knowledgeable about so many different areas. I did want to correct one thing that you said in the introduction of me, which is I have not actually consulted for the United Religions Initiative. I've been involved in collaborative projects with them, but the other stuff is actually accurate. Uh, I did have the privilege of being um, at the Church Center for the United Nations, which is a building that was built by the United Methodist Women uh, directly across the street from um the un and working for religions for peace and various manifestations between 2001 to about 2018 actually still um, do volunteer uh, stuff related to the religions for peace family and appreciate the work with them also other entities at the same time. My colleague at Religions for Peace um, assisted me in writing an article for New Routes Magazine, uh, volume 16. I put the link to it in the chat box there, but it's called the UN and Religious Bodies and Common Search for Peace. And it gives some of the long history leading up to um, basically the background of the UN and their work with religions and then leading up to the World Interfaith Harmony Week, which is what you asked me to speak about um, you know, directly. Religious institutions have been involved with the UN since its very beginning, helping to breathe life into some of its found, founding documents, declarations and principles. Some of the initial meetings for the preparatory committees and so forth met at uh, churches at West, Westminster Abbey Church, uh, originally overseas and then in San Francisco as well. Um, I think it's important um, Um, that we note that religions are arguably so uh, not like any other force in the United Nations orbit. And why is that so? Because they have a force that parallels and in some ways surpasses governments uh, and in most cases uh, have a much larger, deeper history and footprint than what individual governments and even some intergovernmental bodies actually have. And I think that that puts them in a different sort of aura in terms of working. So there's been a tensiveness between religions and um, the UN. And you think about also the age of it, you're talking about institutions that's like 75 years old and you're talking about religions that are hundreds of years old or thousands of years old. So a religion uh, counts report in 2002 uh, titled Religion and Public Policy at the UN found three overarching facts about religion at the UN. One, religion is actually, um, is actually present at the United Nations. Religion's role at the UN is unclear to many, and religion's individuals and groups at the UN don't have any unified perspective on either the issues before the UN or the appropriate role of the religion at the UN. And I have to say that that latter thing has been getting better, but basically all three of those things remain uh, true. It is getting a little clearer about religion's role at the UN, and there is some unified perspective. There's been common work on the um, sustainable development goals, the millennium development goals, and a series of things over the past uh, decade, in particular, that has helped uh, shape and sharpen what's actually happened. All of that uh, said, it's important to note that it's easier for governments to work with interfaith coalitions uh, rather than individual religions or individuals, per se, because working with individual religions lends to the appearance of offering a preference for some sort of favoritism, and the modern interfaith movement has basically provided a solution to the UN and being able to work with coalitions of religious um, peoples and bodies. Um, it's also uh, important to note, perhaps, that the interfaith movement, in effect, and its modern manifestations, born after the United Nations. It really came to birth in the 1960s, and you're looking at the UN being born right after Um, World War II. And there are three big sort of like periods of boom movement in that. In the 1960s, you have a lot of creativity and reimagination of alliances and so forth. And in the United States context, you have the Voting Rights Act, the Immigration Naturalization Act, and the Civil Rights Act, all of which eventually gave shape to like a lot greater diversity in the United States, particularly so the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which has uh, drastically uh, changed the demography of the U.S., in the middle of the 1990s, you have the remanifestation of the Parliament of World Religions 100 years after its first meeting. And then you have from that, um, a, a rebirth of sorts of Religions or Peace and a new manifestation. And you have the, the new birth of the United Religions uh, uh, Initiative uh, through uh, Bishop uh, Bill Swing and his advocacy. So the Parliament, Religions or Peace and URI eventually become the three big uh, interfaith international organizations. And in the post 9-11 era, there was a heavy emotional and I'd say some financial investment in the development of interfaith organizations, um, which created a greater opening for collaboration and made foundations and governments and intergovernmental organizations feel like they could work with the interfaith um, movement and that there was a necessity, an urgency of now to do so because of the fear that came uh, from uh, terrorism uh, and from uh, what was experienced in, in 9-11. In the 1960s, the Temple of Understanding and and Religions of Peace both um, tried to create international bodies of different faiths. And one of the interesting things about that, the story behind Religions of Peace, is a rabbi who was well-known in what is now the Union for Reform Judaism in the United States, Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, simply just wrote an op-ed to the New York Times and said, hey, why isn't there a United Nations for religions? And, uh, you know, it's a simple question, and it received an outpouring of response from people around the globe, which led to meetings, which led to more meetings, which basically led to the, uh, the creation of what is the largest representative international interfaith organization, Religions for Peace. Um, and uh, it was just his question that basically drew people together because he had, you know, he had a uh, um, a monk from India and uh, a priest from Germany and and so on. The stories go all around. Responding to him, saying, "Are you serious? Because if you are, I'll join you." which is a beautiful, you know, sort of thing about people having a sense of world citizenship, if that's what you're uh, wanting to speak to. Um, Bill, Vin- Bill Vinley, who came to head Religions for Peace in the late 1990s, actually revamped it from being like chapters to being inter-religious councils. And he also garnered um, the attraction of bringing some people from the UN and also leadership from the Ford Foundation, or Rockefeller Foundation rather, uh, to Riva Del Gardi, which is the 1994 Sixth World Assembly of Religions for Peace that actually changed uh, how people saw things because the leadership from the Rockefeller Foundation came back and talked with other foundations. Both Ford and Rockefeller put in a million dollars a year for many, many years into Religions for Peace and UNICEF, UNESCO, UNFPA, uh, UNIFEM, uh, UNDP, which is the development program, all of them started developing partnerships and doing work with Religions for Peace because they saw the capacity of using sort of the deep down alliances and uh, structures of religious systems to help um, deliver social goods, to do development work, to help uh, combat uh, conflictual situations. So there were a number of uh, successful cases that followed where Religions for Peace could go in and make interventions in a place, like say Sierra Leone, where there was conflict and be able to work with the religious authorities when the political structures would break down, that there could still be dialogue amongst the religious leaders and they could work for um, peace. After 9-11, I'd say that the activity um, became much more popular, There's was a great interest in it on the part of, of governments, and you have a whole bunch of different governments that started getting involved more heavily. Um, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Netherlands are, are very notable for their large-scale and long-term funding, specifically around development issues in the Global South. You also have um, USAID from the US government perspective and then eventually the White House faith-based offices that start coming online and giving support in various ways uh, to this kind of work. And then the UN formalized its sort of sense of working with interfaith movement through the interfaith and intercultural work um, that became developed by Spain and Turkey in the development of the UN Alliance of Civilizations. So that became sort of like the official arm of the, of the. Um, United Nations, where some of that work began to resonate and, and, and be. Although uh, interfaith work is across all the different agencies of the very complex uh, entity of the UN, and one of the reasons that the UN actually needs the partnership of interfaith and many different other actors, all of the NGOs of various sorts, is because many people don't realize it, but the operating budget of the United Nations is actually the same as the Tokyo Fire Department. So it's not actually very large. Um, They're highly dependent upon the good graces of the countries to uh, give funds. Some of them, like the United States, have at times held back their money, which is crippling um, to the United Nations in terms of being able to actualize its work. So there's all of that. Um, There was a significant um, event in the sense that Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, King Abdulaziz uh, had, had a vision that he wanted to actually in uh, reflecting upon what actually happened in 9-11 and so forth to create an international interfaith organization that was intergovernmental. Um, so he reached out to other governments and went through a multi-year process to develop what is now known as Kaisid that's in Vienna, Austria. It's significant because it has 50 staff and has uh, you know, uh, a budget that's in the tens of millions in terms of what it is that it can execute. And other countries, Kosovo, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Russia, Japan, Indonesia, uh, and so forth, all came online as well. And then you have Qatar with the Doha International Center for Interreligious Dialogue as well. So there's this rich development of governments becoming involved. Meanwhile, <laughs> there's an interest on the part of of uh, people on the the local level of wanting to affect what's actually happening at the UN. And, and there was a desire to create a um, UN Decade for Interreligious and Intercultural Dialogue, Understanding, and Cooperation for Peace. If you could make a longer title, you. you you wouldn't, you know, (laughs) uh, I don't think it's it's a crazy long title. They simply just called it the UN decade. Um, But uh, there was a long effort. It started with the folks in the tripartite forum for interreligious cooperation uh, for peace, which was the Philippines and Pakistan working. There was a lot of independent coalitions or people from the committee of religious NGOs that tried to work on it, but individual people pushing to try to have this. Um, They got upset because Actually, what wound up getting created was the World Interfaith Harmony Week, but I encouraged a lot of my colleagues to realize that having a decade that um, you know is strung out over a period of time and is just a once and off thing, or having a day that may not get recognized, having an entire week every single year is probably a better result than anything. And it was actually Jordan who came to the rescue and initiated a General Assembly resolution in 2010 to host the World Interfaith Harmony Week. And the Alliance of Civilizations, which was formalized by the UN to sort of recognize interfaith and intercultural stuff, uh, helped to do some of the coordination around it. So it's been the country of Jordan, the UN Alliance of Civilizations, and some other partners. Now some of the major interfaith organizations promote heavily the World Interfaith Harmony Week, such as Parliament of World Religions and and URI. Um, So there's all of that. In between all this, um, the work has gotten much more serious in the United Nations. The woman who's uh, most apt candidate to be the new Secretary General of Religions for Peace for a long period of time after leaving Religions for Peace and running the Women's Network there, went to the UN and worked in UNFPA and helped to lead their global interfaith uh, network for um, population and development and then the interagency task force for engaging faith-based organizations around the MDGs and then later the sustainable development goals. Um, so there's a rich, uh, deep history at the UN, and it's evolving, and I would say, getting better and getting um, clearer as to what, what it is that uh, religion can do with the UN. I hope that speaks to some of the things you were asking me to talk to.
0: That's fantastic, but I appreciate that. Um, and whilst you were talking, uh, I received a prompt on my screen. I don't know if you saw that too, but hey, hey we're at the 40-minute mark, and we got a little bit of a gift from Zoom that says we can keep on talking uh and so we we have additional we have a few additional minutes it j- just says they're uh, uh, removing the the restrictions so i, I presume that we're, we're free to talk now uh so haha, fantastic and i i will note that you you conclude exactly on the 40 minute mark so i uh, could yeah. kudos, kudos to you <laughs> um so with that said i have some follow-up questions now uh, based on, on, on what you've shared so thank you very much for the insight and i basically had two follow-up questions but a little bit of a long-winded version of it or a semi-long-winded so you mentioned some of the motivations, or motive, some of the the, um, the uh, impetus uh, for religious communities to 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 begin begin invo- uh, getting get involved in interfaith work. Um, you mentioned motivation of like I'll, I'll refer to like, like the the inspirational institutional motivation of like, hey, we should be doing this. Or like you mentioned, the rabbi with um, uh, religions for peace. I remember the same story included within the um, the birth of a global community that uh, Reverend. Um, Charles Gibbs and Sally Mahe talk about when, when Bishop Swing starts the United Religious Initiative. Francis Young, husband, and, and the Congress, of our uh, World Congress of Faiths. Uh, in addition, there's just like we should be doing this. So that's one motivating factor. Another one I find is that, like you described when something happens and then in a response to that, like 9/11. And I remember seeing you you write somewhere. I don't know if it's your LinkedIn bio somewhere that being that being a significant motivating factor for you getting involved in interfaith movement. And that resonates with me because that's exactly when and, and a lot of why I get involved in it as well. So there's those those kind of things. But at this point. We, there's a certain amount of steadiness in terms of the institutional development within the interfaith movement I mean there there are a number of, a lot of ones that you mentioned um, even even ones like Inter- international Association of religions of uh, for religious freedom has been around for over a century uh, so we have that but then um, we have like local groups that emerge the first question is what what in your experience what brings the, the religious leaders the religious communities to the table other than other than just uh, to do service for others and to do something that benefits people outside of their own community, um, for other purposes than than proselytizing or for other purposes than just responding to to uh, an event or something. But what what are some of those other motivating factors that bring the religions to the table? And then the other thing is when you talk about the foundations um, coming in, like in Scandinavia or the Rockefeller. What what are what are the motivating factors for those big institutions to fund and, and to like invest? And, and how are they investing? In your experience, um, what kind of what kind of work, or what what's the criteria that they look for when, when they're when they're making that type of investment?
3: Yeah, my colleagues and I, uh, from two thousand one to two thousand seven, worked on collecting data basically about the interfaith movement in the United States and actually globally. And uh, w- all of my learnings and their learnings were put together into a book called Interactive Faith. That's by Skylight's uh, uh, Sky, Skylight Path Press, um, and it uh, came out in two thousand eight. it it actually outlines different typologies of interfaith organizations. And I think that um, some of the motivations are actually mapped into that. So one of the things I spoke to was like a crisis, basically people responding to 9-11. So you you have these large upsurges in the mid 1960s, in the mid 1990s being inspired by the Parliament of World Religions, or in uh, post 9-11 of interfaith organizations growing. You can graph it actually, and we did basically to show when they came into being and how long they lasted and so forth. Um, the inspirational uh, activity of the parliament happening in 1993 gave a great birth to many. And then uh, the crisis of 9-11 gave an even larger birth to many more. Um, you also have uh, motivation around a singular issue, which is interesting. So you have people that are, uh, that care basically about like clean water in their community or wanting to address something with their public schools or whatever it is. Okay. And they distra- decide to create an interfaith coalition um, to, uh, to address it. So you have some like Interfaith Worker Justice or uh, Interfaith Alliance, which uh, addresses like religious freedom issues um, that get around a specific purpose to create a sense of alliance. So the, the motivations are um, m- many um, and the reasons uh, for the birth of these different organizations um, you know, are, are, are multitude. Uh, with regard to the foundations and governments, I mean, um, co- Quite frankly, one of the things they saw was like a light bulb went off, and it, they had almost a utilitarian point of view to look at religions as this is a lever by which we could reach many people, because if you think about it, like you know, for, I'm I've been a United Methodist since you know I was a little kid. Um, the United Methodist Church in the United States actually has more Methodist churches than there are United, than there are uh, U.S. post offices there's a Methodist church in every single county in the United States. So when you talk about down to the local level, being able to disseminate something or, you know, reach people in local communities, there's the structure of religious communities that's so very attractive to foundations and governments in order if they can reach an alliance to deliver, you know, something like, you know, wanting to put um, bed nets to help prevent people from getting malaria and uh, being bit by mosquitoes in Africa the way or the vehicle for doing that is to basically work with religious communities to do it. In fact, actually some, over the course of my, you know, about 20 year career, I've seen major foundations just, you know, not be interested and then all of a sudden light bulb goes off and they realize, oh, if we worked with religious communities, we could actually achieve this. You know, you have Bill Gates and his foundation that had an aha moment realizing that one of the best ways he could actually deliver what he wanted to do in Africa was to invest more heavily in interfaith coalitions because they actually, Can get to the local level in a way that it would cost him an inordinate amount of money to build structures that are unnatural rather than natural to help deliver services. The caution to that is is that um, many of the foundations and governments are looking at at a usury sort of thing with religion, and um, the people that are from positions of faith that are working together want to uh, you know protect their integrity of their faith tradition and what it is that they want to give emphasis to and have values or mission towards.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, and I wanna, I wanna provide David an opportunity to, 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 to share what, what, whatever you might be thinking about. I do have a question, but I wanted to just it's just like give you an opportunity to say anything or respond to anything that, that you felt um, appropriate at, the moment, at this point.
2: Yeah, I, well, I agree with Bud. I think interacting with uh, people in religious communities uh, is really important because th- that's oftentimes where people find, uh, their value, the value to their life, value to existence, or determining why why are we here, you know? Um, and I think that's something that, that uh, when we talk about citizenship and world citizenship, the law, it's, it's something completely separate from uh, from religion, other than to talk about like the golden rule, or some religions like the Baha'i faith, which actually embrace the idea, uh, like Baha'u'llah said, that the, uh, world, the world is my country and all humankind are, are my fellow citizens. Um, so but I do think every religion has a, at its base core, you know, do unto others uh, that we you know, should love thy neighbor or we should treat each other the same. So I, I really feel like hearing, hearing this, I, I think this is a good lesson for me to say, oh, maybe we as, as uh, educators of world citizenship need to be re- reaching out to interfaith communities more than we already have. We already are doing that. Uh, in fact, I don't know, but if you know a guy named Dave Otton who's in St. Louis. He teaches religions at St. Louis University, and he's, I think, the head of the interfaith community there. Um, <laughs> anyway, and so we're already trying to bring the idea of world citizenship, world federation to, to religious communities. I guess we just haven't maybe figured out the way to do that yet, so maybe, Bud, we need to, we need to have a chat at some point so I could learn from you how we should, how should, we should make our way into that. Yeah. Yeah. The Scarborough
3: Mission Center in Canada, which is now closed, but has transferred its assets to a university, was actually a a big originator of wanting to deal with uh, all of the different manifestations of um, uh, the the golden rule, basically, and the ways in which it manifests itself. They created posters and educational materials and so forth, and and it became a centering point for a lot of um, interfaith work. Is because the uh, interfaith work is often about uh, working from common place of common shared values of the religious traditions, regardless of the particularities of each tradition. Um, so um, the Golden Rule was a was a tremendous uh, sort of uh, you know. Say, say the name of the Scarborough Mission Center in in okay. Canada, and they have the Golden Rule um, uh, significant amount of work done. It's actually been transferred to another um, uh, center, but that's that's. Okay. Uh, that's where um, I would say the most intense amount of work around the golden rule and the materials and resources are available. I can put you in touch with the uh, people that I've been Let's, in charge.
0: Of it. What's the brother's name, the dear brother's name, who was who, who heading that, uh, escapes me at the moment. Um, uh, I, yeah. not, not to put you on the spot, but you know, because you know, that, that same light bulb went off to me, because he's the one who's always doing the golden rule posters um, in the different languages. Um, right yeah his, his name escapes ah, I thought I was, it's, it's, it's right here but I, I'll I, come
3: up with it in a second it yeah just, I know just, I
0: know yeah I know exactly what he looks like he has the glasses dark hair and everything else but uh the yeah. name escapes me at the moment I saw him at the parliament too but I that, that same light bulb went off when, when David mentioned the golden rule of like oh uh Scarborough missions and and, and the golden rule poster right um so the, the follow-up question I have for you David is um McKenna
3: Paul McKenna. Paul
0: McKenna, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so, uh, David, when you mentioned um, uh, this notion of the, the nexus between the idea of u- the universality of, of human humanity uh, and, 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 and world citizenship, and the, 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 the theologies of the different religions of the world, and, and this notion of brotherly love, and additionally, um, I posed you this question, of, of like a visionary question, of, of uh, let's say let's say world citizenship becomes the convention let's say we're in that in that zone we're in that moment what does that look like and what are we doing um, what what are, what's what's the what what's like the how how do we do that what does it look like and and particularly when we, when we relate it to, uh, to to the experience of religiosity um, religions are big on service of, of providing service to humanity and so uh, the consideration is as world citizens and and as a convention of world citizenship how 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 does that translate to people's religious practice or not even just religious practice but just the practice of service how are we doing that through
2: the guise of citizenship? sure well i my little pun is that a, a world service authority its middle name is service which, which it is uh, so our view of, of how do we bring the idea of of citizenship and our rights and duties that are universal to everyone is is through service service to our our fellow humans service to the earth uh, and I think, what, is, what would a world look like where world citizenship is uh, practiced by by everyone? Well, that would mean we have world peace, <laughs> I would say, because peace, peace is the presence of law, not the absence of war. And when I say world citizenship, some people get afraid when I say world citizenship because they think that we m- might be trying to get rid of the nation state or like gary did he gave up you don't have to give up anything it's it's raising your awareness your understanding your comprehension to that higher level uh, of existence uh, of our link to each other as fellow humans and as linked to all the other uh, beings on the planet and the earth itself uh and and us putting maybe a, you might say a, a legal perspective on that saying not only do we have these rights and duties but we should be able to if they're being violated by our fellow humans or a corporation or whatever else we should be able to go to court and in a peaceful way in a um, adjudicative adjudicative or arbit, uh, arbitration way resolve our differences so it would be a world where we're not going to ever get rid of our of our differences we don't want to we want to be able to uh, transcend our differences so we can celebrate them but we will still have differences and we will still argue but we need to argue in a in a peaceful way, in a non-violent action way. That means that so within a world where world citizenship is is, uh, fully functioning is a world where we will still have uh, arguments, but they will be resolved Peacefully, we, But all of our rights and duties should be met. I mean, I think one of the reasons why uh, there's, you know, enmity either between religions or between groups of people is because uh, we're, we're almost, fi- and it is almost like a fight, we're, and I don't like to use that word lightly, it is like a fight for resources or a fight for power, uh, rather than looking at our world as, as something that we should be thankful for as a gift and that we should share. Um, so I think, you know, having understanding, that's why we were started trying to start these World Citizen Clubs to get to, to youth as, as they're young and put these ideas in their head, because most of what I remember from at least history class is the, the story of one war to the next war to the next war, and not so much all the, the powerful things like, like Harriet Tubman did with the Underground Railroad or, you know, some other like Rosa Parks and her refusal to give up her seat on the bus to say, look, I have, I have rights too, I'm, you know, I'm being discriminated against. So I, I guess it's, it's crea- it's, World citizenship crea- is would for us would be having a world that's, that's at peace, even despite our, our differences. So having a peaceful way to, in a legal way to, to deal with those differences and making sure of course that everyone's rights and duties are fully met because if they're not met, that's what I think in the end leads to uh, frustration and then anger and then unfortunately violence and war.
0: Well, so w- one of the takeaways that, that, I'm, that I'm drawing from what you're describing is, is having world citizenship being being a conversation, uh, and being a conscious uh, being a conscious engagement of uh, civics uh, of, of being able to uh, solve solution, uh, solve problems and and have have uh, and and cooperate um, with a with a global or I, I just used the wrong word I know with a world consciousness uh, no, okay. with a, with an earthwide consciousness sure. um, and so. Uh, and and uh, you mentioned Rosa Parks, and I was actually thinking is, is at that I minute mean, beforehand about uh, what I mentioned before with the uh, the most deaf incident uh, and, and Yassin Bay, uh, traveling from South Africa. i uh, was thinking to myself, that sounds like a world, uh, a Rosa Parks moment uh, for the idea of world citizenship. Um, and, and and the other thing also is in, along the lines of having that conversation is is that it's a teaching moment. It's a teachable moment. Um, and Obviously, it's not the most pleasant of things for, for um, Yasin Bay because he was detained for a while, and, and, and additionally, but meanwhile, cats back here in, in the U.S. are like, yo, what's this all about? They're just hearing rumors, and uh, he was trying to flee this, that, and the other, and what's going on? What's, what's, what's getting up? Is this another Dave Chappelle moment or whatever else? Um, but so there's a lot of like, because cats in the hip hop community, they don't, they don't, to be honest, they don't have a lot of time for, or patience for philosophizing. They're like, it's, it's, we, don't have, we don't have time for these ideas. We got to pay the bills. Uh, and so for your next meal you know you don't have yeah, time exactly exactly and so so here comes most I, I i have to, I, I want to respect him referring to himself as yasin bey but i just i have familiarity with here's yasin bey who has this this um notoriety or this notable name and experience who gets into this situation it's a teachable moment because now there's the opportunity of saying what world citizenship is so the first thing he did when he was in this interview and this is a this is one of the major uh new york radio stations or whatever in the land of the sun sunday um, he's giving he's explaining what, what what happened and so he's like first of all what I did perfectly legal like I wasn't trying and I wasn't nothing trying wrong to, exactly and, and that's it's it's necessary to like say that to, to communicate that to be up front he's like it's a thing it's legal it's legit it's been around for years uh and but now he gets into the exp- explanation and so he says like he, he professes himself as a world citizen and what that means why he does that uh, and just like the actuality of, of, of life and politics and additionally, and how he identifies. Um, and so, like I said before, when, when, he, when he isn't involved and, and, and when he goes through this kind of experience uh, and showing like, it, he, it's not just some kind of thing of, of like going to a protest or whatever, but like, you no, know, he, was, he was in another country, in another land with his family and he got locked up. He, I mean, he was, he was on the front lines of world citizenship. Uh, and so that has credibility. Um, and now people are thinking, okay, well, what's this going on? And so when, when, when it reaches to that kind of like uh, ground level kind of conversational level, now we're starting to, to build at that point. Um, and I think that's exactly like where the, the breadth of conversation that, that we need with world citizenship, but also um, with, the other, with the other additional, when we talk about interfaith and additionally, and the kumbaya, I was having a conversation uh, on my village corner um, th- this past week. Um, a brother asked me, I, I, I sit on my village block, um, which has a lot of restaurants and stuff like that that people walk by, and I just sit there and I make conversations with the people. So on this one occasion, I'm known for doing that. This one occasion, like, yo, dude, I see you all the time. What are you doing? Uh, and so I started talking about it, and I mentioned the word kumbaya. Uh, and I say that when I, when I say what I do. I'm a spiritual diplomat. I do kumbaya. Uh, and and some people ask me about it some people don't um but then this dude this brother asks me and he's like yeah what do you what do you think kumbaya means like what does that mean to you because a lot of people do that as a dismissive thing and i say you know if we look at the literal translation uh from from the, this the, the spiritual song uh, um, culture it, it, it means come by here god uh it, it's, it's a calling of god to help with in this situation and so I, I say that because when we had that conversation on the street it's, it's to be honest, like a lot of cats on the street, when they see these type of things, they just like, oh, those are people that don't have, don't have anything else better to do with their time. They, they have the, 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 the opportunity, the, the, the privilege to, to vacation in these ideas. Um, but here I am on the street and, and I'm saying, I'm doing Kumbaya. And I told him, Yo, I'm on the street. You see me, I'm doing this on a, on a regular basis. And when he sees that, he, I, don't even, I don't have to say anything further. He's just like, all right, okay, I feel that. And, and so there's traction, there's resonance. Um, and, and that's where things start to like, to, to take hold and take shape. Uh, and so I, I, I think uh, that, that, when I was listening to you describe like what, what your what your intentions and, and vision is with world of citizenship and being able to have that conversation, um, I think I mean what what, what world of citizenship looks like perhaps is, is maybe very similar to what it, what today looks like, but just with a different mindset and with a, and a greater efficacy in terms of the peaceful cooperation accordingly uh, and and provide providing the service accordingly Um, so uh, I'm going to be mindful of our time because even though we can talk ad infinitum on zoom at this point (laughs) I know we all have have things to do as well Um, so I'm going to kind of like prepare as we as we kind of uh, maybe share some some closing thoughts or some wrap-up thoughts or anything else that 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 either of you would like to um, to to, uh, share before we wrap up
1: I
3: think it would be nice if David would share some in the chat box before he closes out some of the uh, links that he had suggested. I know you were going to post some as well, Peter. I I posted uh, the link to the article and also the reference to the golden
2: rule site. I appreciate our conversation today. Thank you, bud. Yeah. And so uh, from my standpoint, I would say one love, one heart, (laughs) let's get together and we'll be Be all all right. You know what?
0: Uh, beautiful there. You know what? I, I think that's a very appropriate way to wrap it up. Uh, and, and, and that's that's exactly how the documentary on Marley wraps up as well. Um, a montage of people from all around the earth singing that song. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and so I think that's very appropriate. Um, and seva is just the word that comes to mind uh, from Sanskrit and, and Indian tradition service and, and just the well-being, the, the the healing that we provide through that tikkun olam just throw in another word so thank you both that bud and and david for for joining in this conversation today very much appreciate it um and 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 look forward to the follow-through in, in our continuing work so cheers
1: thank
0: you bye. Thank you. appreciate it peace you too. you too all right bye All right, another one and another one. So, um, actually, to be honest, yo, I like that joint. Uh, I think, yo, there's a lot of uh, valuable information in there. Uh, Bud has an extreme wealth of information uh, and, and experience and insight. Uh, and so each of those, he may, he shares a lot of references. Um, he's talking about uh, NGOs, uh, United Nations, uh, system institutions, institutions. Um, talk about USAID um UNDP United Nations Development Program uh, and all these other things yo that's that's where the like the the funding is uh and I don't I don't get too big on on the money thing but what, but in terms of like getting material support for programming and additionally um that that's the inside. And and. Their mechanisms, their hoops and ladders to go through and everything, but that's, I mean, he, he shares some, some valuable information there, uh, and also uh, an introduction on, on how to uh, approach um, those institutions to facilitate uh, community programming. Uh, and David uh, shares some, some valuable information in terms of the premise of world citizenship uh, as an option, particularly for people who have that inclination uh, but maybe without uh, a, a, an affiliation with some type of other uh, political or, or, or uh, international political entity. Um, and so there are a lot of takeaways in this joint. Um, with the work that we do with Melanger and uh, uh, and our uh, Melanger Wisdom and Righteousness and Additionally, uh, there uh, these are the take- takeaways that I that I focus on at the moment one is the idea that uh, David shares about the, the um, world service or excuse me the world citizen uh, clubs local clubs and uh, I, I, I mean that's what we work with uh, in terms of melanger um, and uh, building uh, cultivating uh, local uh, community groups and centers uh, to talk to build uh to cooperate um and particularly through the guise of of um or uh, to facilitate economic cooperation ethics based economic cooperation uh and having a a network of these clubs of these uh of groups in in our in our respective villages around the earth connecting with each other and doing trade doing exchanging products and services Uh, particularly amidst the challenges that are experienced at this moment Um, and uh, amidst all the um, insecurities fears and uh, additionally um, experiencing an increased amount of a strengthened amount strengthened stability uh, within how we put food on our table, what, what, in how we uh, satisfy the material economic needs that we respectively have and collectively have. So world citizenship clubs in our respective areas is, a, is a, a very fantastic way of facilitating that type of connection, taking it from the level of of conversation to the ne- to, to the next level of cooperation. Uh, David mentioned each group having uh, an interest, whether it's cleaning the beach or, or or otherwise. Well, economic cooperation is a very valid um, premise for coming together and and building. So um, and then uh, the the information that uh, David. Wow, did I say Bud? I meant David. Uh, and the information that Bud shares in terms of um, the 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 international realm. I mean he. he there are a lot of references that can be looked up. Um, there are a lot of references that can be looked up. Um, and But each of those references is a facilitator, is a conduit, uh, is a supporter of this type of endeavor, of, of uh, local clubs, local world citizenship clubs, Melanger world citizenship clubs, uh, forming, period, I mean forming at first, Uh, And then cooperating with each other, building a network, uh, building a communication system, building a platform online. um, And instead of uh, utilizing the free services of um, established uh, um, social media uh, companies uh, in the terms uh, favorable and unfavorable and having an increasingly independent, autonomous, self-determined, self-sustaining platform um that that's not commercialized uh that's not beholden to uh periodic sponsorship but that it is self-sustaining through institutional um uh, support uh long-term institutional investment uh not loans we don't do them loan teams uh that is just another f- f- uh, facade of enslavement so um that being said uh that's part of the infrastructure when we talk about uh, community building, uh, and particularly world, global, earth, village, community building. And it's actually extremely doable, and it, it, it's already being done in many ways, the consideration is just um, augmenting and strengthening the way it is done. and. Um, That's part of the divest, invest, covest. Divest from the things that are harmful for us. Invest in things that are healthy for us. And covest with those who are investing in the same things as we are. So um, we can talk about uh, this continent, Turtle Island, North and South. We can talk about Africa. We can talk about uh, the Mediterranean and the Middle East. We can talk about Europe. We can talk about Asia, South and Asia, East. Um, And the villages we have... The villages we live in, uh, in each of these locations, and the resources, the material resources, the food, the staples, the dry staples that we can store, that we can ship uh, to each other uh, in, in, in exchange for the things that, that may be absent or further distant from where we are uh, technology, uh, services, and additionally. So that's what we're doing with Melanger. Um, and the, there, are, there are institutions uh like Casid uh, and uh, El Hebri foundation and um da, 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 a, a number of the other institutions that that bud mentions um that with with uh proficient um, uh, communication and explanation and and, prep- and planning and preparation are are uh amenable and even uh uh keen on investing in such uh, cooperation uh, so at the end of the day we only have ourselves to blame and we only have well I'm not going to say we only have ourselves to thank but um, whatever the appropriate binary of that is when we talk about blame um, support how about that uh, something like that anyways way to, way to conclude it on a, uh, an ambiguously inconclusive manner fantastic Oh, self-deprecation. Oh, let's psychoanalyze my delivery as well. The hesitation, the ums, uh, the jitteriness in terms of the uh, the, the, uh, the delivery of, of speech, and additionally, um, it can be maybe I'm being increasingly self-critical, and maybe that's just another extension of the self-deprecation. However, this is what I share. Uh, I'm reminded that many of the, uh, I shouldn't say many, I'll say a number of um, our ancestors, prophets, and sages are described as having some type of impediment uh, when it comes to communication, whether it be Moshe Rabenu to Diganuvida, the great uh, peacemaker of the Hodin Asani. Um, there is always uh, there's 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 some type of um, human or um, earthly frailty or um, uh, challenge that that provides perhaps some increasing relatability. Um, in people who have something special to share now i abstain from equating myself to each of these but it helps to provide some encouragement and solace uh i can provide that to be honest when when i think about it um energy levels plays a part of it Uh, i'm melanger and so i operate at different temperatures uh higher temperatures tend to move slower uh in terms of like uh People of higher temperatures, people of hotter water, tend to move slower in terms of like the the, the delivery, and people of colder temperatures temperatures tend to be quicker in terms of communication. And additionally, that's generally um, rather than exclusively. Uh, and so recognizing that, yo, I work at n- many different temperatures, um, and 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 I have to have a certain amount of fluidity. And in doing that, and 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 in being. Um, uh, 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 flexible and that there can be some some choppiness in the delivery um but that's just part of why i'm so long story short with that is that uh my energy can be high at some some points and it, other than eagerness it's it's, it's less of like that, that, that youthful kind of like um uh excitement or whatever it's just like my um that's where it is uh, and particularly in this particular scenario, uh, the one that was in the convo just, just a, a minute ago, um, uh, there was a time crunch on it. Uh, there was, there was this 40 minute, a 40 minute limit for the convo. And so I was mindful of that. I had background uh, going on as well. And so there are other things in my ear. Uh, and so the other factors that, that go into the concentration. So that being said, uh, there is something to be said for, um, a dude who is just laid back, comfortable and and poised Uh, i think uh, bud does a nice job of that and david does a nice job of that in terms of delivery um and that kind of uh poise and and comfort uh instills confidence and encouragement in in the audience so i appreciate that whereas my approach may serve may serve uh, may lend itself to an increased amount of criticism or scrutiny of like oh why, why is he so pressed or why is he so anxious or whatever else there's actually intentionality with that as well, and it's not necessarily my intentionality, but I understand it a little bit further, um, and it's part of the the, the game uh, that we uh, of the of the is it uh, Paul Owens Dunbar um, who says this or Claude McKay? Ah, uh, this is one poet from the Harlem Renaissance that says we wear the mask? So it's part of the mask that I wear, uh, voluntarily and involuntarily. So. Um, I try to explain it just for for people to understand because I think there are certain people that actually very much appreciate and support what I have to share and and become concerned or advocate uh, me being increasingly authoritative and demonstrative in sharing it. However, um, the fact is that, um, well, I ain't going to get into a little spiel about that. This is about the convo. World citizenship, world service, world interfaith, harmony, beautiful things. I think is a a valuable conversation. And as we continue at this point, um, in terms of the work of Melanger, uh, I share a number of things in a recent email. Uh, I'm planning to to post some things. Uh, oh, the links, the links that are referenced there, you can catch the original conversation with the video, um, on the Cafe Melanger YouTube channel, um, it would it would be somewhat laborious for me to like go back and 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 repost all the links i think that were left there i think the links are on the the cafe melody channel it's probably the one that says world citizenship again it was convened about two and a half months ago actually uh so you can just scroll back through the the uh, backlog of videos there it's specifically labeled i think as well um that's most of it at the moment um So, with that, I say this Namaste, Assalamu Alaikum, Shalom, Mir, Zaijin, Adios, Te Chakaris, Esempena Asamuvo, Kelig O'Fred. One love and peace, happiness, and liberation.